Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Here is your host, Lori Reichel, the Puberty Prof, a nationally recognized health educator, author of the award-winning book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty, and creator of the Talk Puberty app. Welcome to the Puberty Prof Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lori Reigel, the Puberty Prof. The fall series of the Puberty Prof Podcast is focusing on items noted on the National Sexuality Education Standards, in which this specific episode will be on anatomy and physiology, which is about the physical changes. But it's not going to focus on those physical changes we typically think about, like bodily growth spurts, new or darker hair growth, increase in body odor, et cetera. Instead, this episode is focusing on the neurology or brain changes that goes on and the need to provide positive coping skills for preteens. To help better explain these brain changes and how to best support the young people in our lives, I invited Dr. Gina Simmons-Schneider. Dr. Gina Simmons-Schneider is a licensed psychotherapist, award-winning blogger, certified coach and corporate trainer. And she serves as co-director of Schneider Counseling and Corporate Solutions. She's also the author of Frazzle Brain, Break Free from Anxiety, Anger, and Stress Using Advanced Discoveries in Neuropsychology. And I'm so excited to have her be here. Thank you so much, Gina, for being here. I love the brain. So I appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think we're all happy that we have a brain. <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's an essential part of a human body. But thank you so much for, for inviting me. Well, thank you again for being here. And do you mind telling us a little bit about your background? I would love to share that. I have a very broad background. I began working with adolescents, uh, particularly working with um, emotionally disturbed pedophiles in a residential treatment center. Uh, and then I went on to working with incarcerated youth in uh, a, very, a variety of different settings, providing them with different skills to help them with independent living once they uh, came out of incarceration. Um, and then I also worked in a uh, juvenile diversion program where we worked with families of juvenile offenders and helped them uh, manage their extreme emotions and, and behaviors. And um, then I went into private practice and started doing that. I also worked for uh, a while for the San Diego Probation Department as an assistant deputy probation officer. So I've, I've had a lot, uh, a big, broad window into the extremes of adolescent behavior and how that impacts families and how families can better help those, those young people who are going through tough tough situations. Um, and then it, it kind of went into uh, doing critical incident stress debriefings where we would be called in after a workplace violence situation, after workplace shootings, and we would provide counseling and debriefing for the, the survivors um, who are traumatized. And we did that for a while and um, started providing workplace violence uh, prevention trainings in corporations. Uh, we did some work for the FBI on helping them with anger management and conflict management within the FBI. 
um, and then uh, broadened to other corporations, Fortune 500 corporations. So then we, um, I had a uh, teen anger management program. Uh, so we would teach parents and teens how to deal with some of these big, bad tempers and, um, and then uh, continue, sort of continued our coaching and executive coaching. But we really decided to emphasize prevention as opposed to uh, going in after the fact, after somebody's done something really bad. Um, and, uh, and it's much more satisfying to feel like we are preventing extreme behavior rather than trying to clean up what's happened afterwards. Thank you for explaining your background and for doing what you do. I don't know if you know that my background is working in schools K through 12 as a health educator. And I got into the field to teach prevention skills and to prevent as much as possible. And then upon noting something unhealthy was going on to support an intervention by reaching out to the school, social workers, psychologists, guidance counselors. So I truly appreciate what you do. And when you first started to explain your background, you right away said you worked with people who, who participated in pedophilia and then in a youth setting, a juvenile setting. And I can only mm -hmm. imagine what that was like for you. Yeah, it was really interesting because you know, you're, you're working with emotionally disturbed youth. They were all pretty disturbed. Um, uh, but these are teenagers, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, who are already engaged in pedophilia. You know, they're, they are molesting younger siblings or molesting random children in restrooms and things like that. So it was, they needed to be in a facility um, to, to really have be kind of reoriented and re-socialized. So that was a real, um, wake up call too, that, that there are kids who are so disturbed that they really need to be in an institution of some sort. Um, and, uh, but I think it also helps in assessing, uh, people too, if you've worked at, at the extreme ends of mental illness, um, you can, you can also sort of judge where people are in terms of the types of intervention they need. Because um, uh, I think a lot of times we don't want to see things like that. We don't want to believe they exist. Uh, so if you actually see it and you know it exists, um, it does help you protect others and uh, prevent them from getting in trouble and, and doing, doing things that are really harmful. And as we know, a lot of people do these behaviors because they were done to them. So there's yeah. this attempt to intervent and stop, stop the cycle. Yeah. Now going to your book, Frazzle Brain, I'm thinking that's on the prevention side. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about your book? Yes, I'd love to. It's called Frazzle Brain, Break Free from Anxiety, Anger, and Stress Using Advanced Discoveries in Neuropsychology. So it's really looking at how do we manage anxiety, anger, and stress, because they all tend to go together kind of like a three-headed monster. Um, and in most of the, the um, problem behaviors we see in society, the underlying, they tend to be motivated by underlying anxiety and anger, um, unresolved, undealt with, you know, not not 
using coping skills. People don't have coping skills. So I sort of see it as anxiety and anger always seem to go together. So when your adolescent is acting out in anger and irritability, there's almost always an underlying uh, inner conflict going on inside of them that's generating this feeling of anxiety and it's coming out in irritability and anger, anger episodes. So I think sometimes that helps uh, helps us in all of our relationships, whether it's parent-child relationship or a husband-wife relationship or whatever, uh, with a partner, um, with a coworker. If we see these angry outbursts, I've trained myself to see it as underlying anxiety and vulnerability, and that helps me cope better with with other people. So, um, the book provides people with both resources in order to cope with their own extreme emotions. And I have all these little frazzle hacks or little coping strategies that you can use. And then it also helps with interpersonal processing of, of extreme emotions in, in other people and difficult emotions in other people and how to cultivate a little bit of, of compassion and how to cope better with those um, problem behaviors. So I, I really saw a need because I've been working in, in this field for over 30 years now in helping people with extreme emotions and relationship issues in the workplace and at home. And I realized that a lot of the books I recommended, if, if you were looking at a book on anxiety, it would, it would really frustrate people because the, they wouldn't start getting any coping skills until like chapter seven. And they'd also feel a lot more stressed out reading it because they would be reading all these symptoms. You know, if you have this anxiety disorder, take this checklist. And there's all these like negative symptoms that you're reading about. And it would stress out my clients, you know, um, and some of them couldn't make it through the book. So I wanted to write a book that was soothing to read. And a lot of people have talked about how they feel so much better reading it because they're there's a lot of soothing language in it and there are soothing techniques in it. And I don't pull back from talking about the hard stuff. I mean, the hard stuff is in there, trauma, things like that. It's all in there. However, it's um, here's the remedy, you know, here's the remedy, here's a way to cope. And uh, that comes very quickly. So, um, so I'm, I'm pleased to hear that, that, that my, that when people are reading it now, they're, they, some people have even said that when the book, when they finish the book and it's just sitting there, if they look at the book, they start to feel a little better because they start thinking about some of the things they, that they read in it. So that's the goal of the book to really help soothe and, and comfort people. But I provide a lot of neuropsychology research because what's new about my book is that we've known for a long time that anxiety and anger are linked. Uh, way back, Sigmund Freud talked about it, um, but he didn't have a window into the brain like we have now with our modern fMRI, our functional magnetic resonance imaging um, uh, uh, tests and our PET scans that we can use where we can actually see what the brain is doing uh, in real time. And I think it really helps people to know that when I recommend a technique that it's actually helping you create a new neural pathway and a new habit um, that is going to help you feel happier, but also help you be more effective in coping with pretty extreme stresses and events in your life.
wonderful. And I can imagine because your tone as you're talking is very calming. I can imagine that your book is aligned with that. Does that make sense? Thank you. (laughs) Well, that was my goal. You know, that was my goal to try to make it a calming experience to read it. Well, can you give us two to three coping strategies that preteens and adolescents can use to manage their anger or anxiety? Definitely. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is the, you know, anger informs us and it's a normal, healthy emotion. It's not the problem. It's what we do with it, right? So if a teen is feeling anger and anxiety, um, depending on where they are in their their process, they might be going through a lot of humiliation, embarrassment, feelings of shame, feelings of awkwardness, um, feelings of irritability about interpersonal relationships, feelings of vulnerability, you know, whatever those um, extreme emotions are, sometimes we need to discharge it physically. um, Because our, we're just feeling a lot of agitation uh, in our body. And Uh, So it helps to kind of have an activity that you value, that you like doing, Um, an activity that maybe is associated with a skill. Uh, For example, when I was an adolescent for a period of time, I had a set of drums uh, in the garage. And when I would get angry, I would go and play a rock and roll song and beat the heck out of those drums. And I wanted to become better at drumming. Um, I never became very good at it, but I, I wanted to get better at it and I beat the heck out of those. So if you, if you care about, uh, running, if you want to be in track and field, you know, if you can safely take a run, um, if you want to do push-ups, sit-ups, um, uh, dance, a lot of people put on music and, and just, you know, freak out with dancing. But the the goal is to associate it with a value that you have. Like I care about music or I care about uh, physical fitness or I care about, um, uh, I wanna be uh, a bet- better at basketball. And so you just go and dribble that basketball, you know, and, mm-hmm. and bang it against a wall. Um, if you have a safe place and if parents can allow kids a safe place, to do a valued activity, a few minutes of that can discharge some of that. The other thing is uh, journaling and diaries are really, really helpful for kids. And I'm sure you've talked about this. Um, They're really helpful because uh, when we're going through adolescence, we're going through a period of figuring out who we are, figuring out who our people are, who do we like, who do we care about? What is our tribe? You know, what do we wanna stand for? And journaling, and there's a natural desire for introspection and understanding our own personalities and understanding the personalities of others. And there's a lot of studies on the the power of journaling and not on a computer, but a piece of paper with a pen where you're actually using your hands. And you can let out a lot of anger that way. If you're not allowed to go outside, if it's not safe to go out and run because you're mad and it's 11 o'clock at night, um, you know, you get out of your journal, your diary, and you just can scribble on there uh, aggressively and uh, let out all of your feelings. But it also is a really helpful way to pause and reflect because a big part of what adolescents need to do with their brain 
is it's a use it or lose it kind of thing. So if you're not using your brain, if you're not using a skill, your brain will start pruning back uh, those cells that aren't being used. So when we are when we are journaling and we're thinking about, you know, how do I feel about that boy or girl at school, you know, and how, you know, how, why am I mad, so mad at my mother? Or, um, you know, why do I feel so excruciatingly embarrassed now? Um, and you do that deep dive into your own um, psychology, you can pause and reflect. And then you look back and you go, oh, yeah, three days ago, I felt so terrible, but today I feel really good. And, you know, you can start to say, well, I feel really good today because maybe I did more activities that are really important to me. And back then I was, you know, having PMS or, you know, before my period or something. And, you know, so you start to be able to track your own moods and you track your own, you know, what things make you feel better and and so on. So, so I would say, you know, release it physically with something you care about. Even hand drums are helpful and playing music with hand drums. Um, If you like music, um, there's, or dance or whatever, uh, sports, um, doing some kind of journaling. And then also um, talking to a trusted friend or uh, an adult. Um, uh, I know that in my life as an adolescent, I had a lot of lateral mentors. I learned a lot from my friends. I tend to be attracted to kids that were a year or two older than me. They taught me uh, so many things from how to play guitar to, you know, uh, uh, how to just navigate in the world. And um, so if you, it's important to have one or two c- close people that you can call up or talk to uh, about your feelings where you feel like you can be really honest because in that back and forth mirroring where you're talking to somebody, it could be a a parent. If you have that kind of relationship with a parent, uh, a peer, um, I know some people in your position, um, Dr. Reichel, you know, they, uh, you probably have people who, who can, kids can, that can confide in you that they can't confide in anyone else. I know as a therapist, I was often the only person that they had told, you know, about certain, certain things. So having a trusted person to talk to. So those three things, talking to somebody, releasing it physically with a valued activity and, and uh, having a diary or a journal really, really helpful. I love the coping skills you just provided. And you make me think of the physicalness of doing something to release different hormones and stuff. Could you give a brief synopsis of what happens during those preteen and teen years with the brain? Like there are things going on, correct? Yeah, there, there's a lot going on in the brain. I mean, I think that, um, first of all, if you think of the brain just isn't an organ in our head, but it's connected to every organ system in our body. And, um, and it interacts. So we have this nerve called the vagus nerve that has two big old thick pathways that go from the back of our head all the way down to every, pretty much every major organ in our body, our heart, our gut, uh, pancreas, you know, everything. Um, and that vagus nerve And then with our gut, our gut produces most of the serotonin 
which is a natural antidepressant, 90% of it is produced in the gut. So we also have a nervous system in our gut. So when we feel anxious and nervous and depressed and whatever, our gut can often um, have experiences, uh, uh, discomfort, you know, uh, excessive gas, we can have indigestion, uh, we can lose our appetite, we can increase our appetite, all based around our moods. And so then you have the, the pituitary gland in the brain, you know, uh, triggering all of these um, uh, pre-puberty hormones, right? Um, and those all interact so in a very complex way. It's almost like a whole symphony orchestra going on uh, with the whole body. So the best thing you can think about is that, that I think are the most simple things to think about in terms of adolescence is this is a time to grow your competencies, to get good at something. So you want to use your brain at things with things you really care about because what you don't use, you're going to lose because your brain is like growing really fast and then it's pruning away those things you're not using. The other thing to think about is what you put in your gut is extremely important. If you are eating at McDonald's every day, if you are not eating fruits and vegetables every day, you're not getting the minerals, the micronutrients that help your gut function and then help your brain get the neurochemicals that help you um, avoid depression and, and anxiety disorders. So um, we know there's a relationship between the gut microbiome and anxiety and depression. And we know there's a relationship between nutrition and mental health. So I think that um, I would look at habits of, you know, eating nutritious foods, even if you want to have some junk once in a while, fine, but don't skip the nutritious foods, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day, uh, you know, making sure you get enough protein, all that kind of stuff. Um, because a, lo a lot of times kids will go on these fad diets, you know, they'll be like, or they won't eat or they have body image issues. And then what that does is it causes a cascade of emotional reactions because your brain is not getting the nutrients it needs to produce the natural antidepressants. And your brain is not getting the, um, uh, the cope, you need that, the coping skills, you need to access those coping skills from your own brain telling you, let's do this. This is a healthier choice. So, um, so I think it's, to, to successfully get through adolescence, use the energy you have to get good at something, something you love, something you care about, whether it's a sport, whether it's science, math, reading, um, anything that you care about, really work at it and, and enjoy yourself and, and make sure you get what you need in, in the, uh, to, to manage your nervous system. So your nervous system is going to be better regulated if you regulate your gut microbiome and if you're fueling your brain with, with values and the values that you have and the activities that you care about. So for the caregivers, the parents that are listening in, you're, you're talking about all this natural stuff that's going on with the brains, which then makes it sometimes challenging for parents and other caregivers. What recommendations or stress management tools do you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're, 
thinking about what's effective parenting for teens, um, I think one of the toughest things I've seen when I've worked with parents, um, with parents who are who are have starting to have difficulties with their teens, one of the things I've noticed is some parents have difficulty transitioning from an authoritarian parenting style because your eight-year-old wants to please you. And so if you say, you know, go clean up your room or something, they might argue with you a little bit, but they want to please you and they want to make you happy. But a teenager is now someone who is a young adult. They want to practice some of their adult skills. They want to be able to, to, you have to reason with them. Why should I clean up my room when I really need to do this? And I would prefer to do this instead. And so I think parents have trouble adjusting sometimes to a more uh, negotiation kind of parenting where they negotiate with their teen about helping them coordinate their schedule, uh, listening to what the teen's needs are and saying, okay, well, nevertheless, you need to do this uh, for yourself, but we also have these responsibilities at home. Let's talk about how we can, we can take care of your needs and the needs of the household or the responsibilities that you have. Um, so I, I think that setting clear expectations for your kids, uh, if they are um, uh, wanting to be um, more independent, um, one of the things we did with our three kids um, is we told them right off the bat, we're giving you an opportunity to have, to do something you've never gotten to do before. You wanna go and do this thing with your friends we have to meet your friends. We have to meet your friends' parents. You can have the sleepover once we've cleared those people. Um, and, and we are trusting that you are going to use good judgment and you are going to follow the rules. And if you do that, you will continue to get more freedom. And as long as our trust is there, as long as we know and you're where you say you are and you, you know, you're following the rules and you're coming home on time and all of those things, um, we, uh, we will continue to give you more freedom. So it's, a, I think for parents, it's you give the freedom, see how they do. And they say, good job. Hey, next time. Yeah, we're going to say yes. Uh, if they make a mistake, they do something wrong. They sneak out at night. They, they're not at the place they said they were going to be. They do, you know, you go, okay, well, now we're going to have to restrict your freedom because you violated the trust and we have to earn that back. And sometimes if you talk to kids in terms of, Rather than it being a cynical authoritarian, you know, I knew you were going to screw up and I knew, you know, um, rather than, than uh, parenting with a sort of cynicism, uh, it helps to parent with love and just say, you know, this is, this is going to hurt all your relationships if you're dishonest. And I want you to have good relationships in life. And this isn't good for our relationships. So therefore, you're going to have this consequence. You are not going to be able to go out this weekend. You're going to have to write me a letter of apology for, for being dishonest. And you're going to have to now earn back your right to have that freedom. So I think that helps parents to set clear guidelines. I think a lot of parents are afraid to talk about things like drugs, alcohol, and all of that. Um, I think some parents also are just sort of... Uh, there's two mistakes I think parents make. It's either 
we aren't going to talk about that because if we don't talk about it, the child will not ever hear about it. And so it will never be a problem. That's denial. <laughs> and I don't mm -hmm. recommend it. The other pathway is they're going to do it anyway. So let's just let them do it. Um, and that's also problematic because kids need parents as a backbone, as their backbone to help them stand up to peer pressure. Mm -hmm. So if a kid can say, my, my mom will get furious or my dad will be furious with me. Um, if I do this, I can't, I can't do that. Or I can't sneak out because I'll get in trouble. Um, then that gives them a little backbone to keep from doing things they're not ready to do, to keep from the pressure that their peers will put on them. Um, so I do think it's important to say to kids, no, you're too young to drink. No, you can't do drugs. No, those are not okay. Not, not to say to them, well, everybody does it. I know we did it too. And we were teens and you know, you're going to have to experiment because that doesn't give them any um, strength to say no. And they can, they can, um, kids can say no to their peers, especially if they know that that expectation is very clear. So if parents don't give clear expectations, then children are often going to just be at the mercy of whatever the situation is that they're in and they can get in over their head and it can be very, very, um, uh, painful and, and problematic. What's interesting about what you just said is that like when I'm in the classroom K through 12, I have flat out said to my students, hey, we're about to go on the eighth grade trip. You know, this is a, an opportunity we have. I am your number one excuse on this trip. I am that if somebody asks you to do something, you say, Reichel will not be happy. And, <laughs> And that's the same, like I've heard in the research that if we give that, well, I did this as a kid, it's basically giving more permission to young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's making them feel like they're going to be a wimp if they don't engage in things that they really don't want to do. Maybe they are afraid of taking drugs and, and getting drunk and, you know, all of those things, but they're feeling the pressure. Like, I don't want to be the weirdo. So parents giving kids I've, I've seen this where parents will go, well, kids are going to drink. So I'm just going to have a beer party at my house. Besides that being illegal, you know, right. um, it, it, it is, you know, a real prescription to encourage underage drinking, which is terrible for a teen's brain. Um, it's really bad for the developing brain. So I think it's good to tell kids the truth. This is really bad for your brain. You want to, you know, you're smart. You're never going to learn faster than you learn now. So just learn a bunch of stuff that you care about and um, get good at something. Uh, build some competencies, build some skills and have fun doing it. And, um, and if you do that, then your brain is just going to really get the benefit of the, of these, you know, this, this growth spurt between you know, adolescence and, and 25 when the brain is fully, more fully matured. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really helpful. And I think you, you teachers, you know, you people who have had to do this to manage, you know, 40 unruly people, you know, <laughs> to herd the cats, you know, um, you, you've had to develop some skills of, of classroom management and, and then taking them on field trips too, where there's all these opportunities for them to sneak around and they're all so clever mm -hmm. and they can, they can 
you know, put pressure on other kids. So yes, when parents are firm about their expectations and consistent with those expectations, then it gives kids a backbone to say no. They don't always say no, but it gives them, it helps them to, to avoid getting in over their head when they're young and, and impressionable. What advice do you have for young people that might be listening in? I would say really try to tune into what gives you joy and experiment with things if you aren't sure. Joy is the antidote for depression. Dep and, and depression and anxiety um, can be crippling, right? So I think a lot of parents put so much pressure on their kids to, and I, and I see so many um, anxious and, and unhappy young people because they're feeling the weight of the world. You know, like you need to make a good living. You need to make a lot of money. Uh, you need to, uh, all this pressure. And there's very, you know, and then joy is sort of an afterthought or a sneaky thing that sneaks up on you when you're doing something you're not supposed to or whatever, you know, and that is a, a recipe for mental illness and, and, and depression because depression is a sort of hopelessness. So I think we need to encourage young people to be hopeful. Um, I also think that there are big, big problems facing young generation now, and they are all feeling it. I talk to young people and they are feeling the pressure of climate change. They are terrified of gun violence in the school. They have feelings of hopelessness and helplessness about these big problems that are going to impact them for the rest of their lives. So these are big, big things. So what helps us feel hopeful? Well, belonging to a community that's trying to make things better. So encouraging young people, I encourage young people to be part of something, you know, be part of a school program to clean up the local river or um, be part of a political campaign if you really care about, you know, gun violence. Um, join with your church community and help help old people rebuild their homes. Um, do something that you actually care about with other people. Um, even if it, if it doesn't exist, start one in your school, start a club, uh, a club for, uh, you know, kids whose parents are going through a divorce or whatever it is you feel there's a need for. Joining with other people helps us feel hopeful because we can amplify our influence. And young, we do know that young people can change the world and do change the world. So hope is healthy. Hopelessness is not healthy. Hope comes from, from joy, from having a vision that things can be better and working towards that vision. So um, I think parents also need to give kids permission to and encourage joyful activities. Uh, that helps us, energizes us, uh, motivates us. Um, it's, it, um, and, and, and I, a lot of parents are just not caring at all about their children's happiness. And then they lose, children lose trust in their parents because they see them as the enemy of their happiness.
So we need to be collaborators with each other's happiness. You know, we need to encourage in a family. Uh, yeah, I want you to be able to play music or I want you to be able to, to do this, but these are the parameters where you can do it safely, you know? Um, so yes, for young people, I would say tune into your joy, join with other people in the things that you care about um, and use your brain, uh, exercise the things, uh, have big dreams, have big dreams. Do not let people shrink your dreams. You're too young and unqualified to predict what you're capable of. When you are a teenager, you have no idea what you're capable of. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, I had no idea I would have a PhD. None of my family was educated. My grandfather was the only one that had a college degree. Um, I didn't associate with people who were highly educated when I was growing up. Um, so I never had that as a, as a vision. I wanted to be a, a singer and an entertainer. That was my, that was my dream. I ended up doing that for a while and finding out I didn't like it, but, um, but having your dreams motivates you and it opens doors and it gets you out there. So, you know, if you have a dream that you want to discover the cure for cancer and people tell you that's impossible, if that's what excites you, nobody is qualified to tell you, you can't do that. Um, I mean, I think I'm qualified to say that I am not qualified to be a linebacker for, you know, the chargers or whatever. Um, <laughs> I would love to play for the NBA, but it's not going to happen. I'm five foot two and I'm old <laughs> um, and I'm the wrong gender. Um, so I think there are things obviously that we can say are not possible, but if you have a dream, make it a big one, make it one that excites you. Join with other people and learn everything you can learn and you will never regret it. I have never heard a person say, I really regretted studying hard. You know, um, I have heard people say, I really regretted partying hard, <laughs> you know? So it, I, I recommend to young people to, to find things and, and express what you're curious about and, and uh, be curious and don't shut yourself off from the things that, that excite you. What a wonderful way to end this episode, to remind us, particularly young people, to dream. Always, always dream. Uh, we never know what the future is going to hold. So I thank you so much for sharing your words of advice and the coping skills. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how could they do that? I would love to hear from any listeners. Uh, frazzlebrain.com is my website. Um, frazzlebrain.com, one word, frazzlebrain, um, just like it sounds. And um, there's a contact thing there. You can contact me and I will get back to you. I will answer, answer you. Um, I would love to hear from anybody. Um, I am on, you know, all the social media sites too. And you can find those on frazzlebrain.com. So if you want to follow me on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that, you can find me there and I will, I will get back to people and I especially love to mentor young people. So um, any of the, your young listeners, uh, if they have a question for me, I'd love to, to respond. 
Thank and you. and the grown-ups too. I, I won't discriminate. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Simmons Schneider. And I hope you were okay that I referred to you as Gina earlier in our recording. Oh, of course, of course. I, I usually go by a first name basis all the time. So I'm very comfortable with that. Thank you. Well, thank you again for being here today and to our listeners. I truly appreciate you listening in and I hope that you learned something today by Dr. Simon Schneider. I, again, I love thinking about the brain and talking about the brain. And I was reminded today about being hopeful and dreaming uh, because we never know what tomorrow brings. So thank you so much for listening in and I hope you have a happy and healthy day. Thank you for listening to the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the Puberty Prof on Twitter or Instagram. The Puberty Prof, Lori Reichel, wants to hear from you. Go to pubertyprof.com or click on the link in this episode's description. There you can find more information, as well as ask questions to be answered by the Puberty Prof in a future episode. That's pubertyprof.com. Also, remember to check out the Talk Puberty app and the book, Common Questions Children Ask About Puberty. Until next time, this is the Puberty Prof Podcast, where information and tools are shared to help you have conversations about puberty and other growing up topics.